The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome to another live Clubland Q&A here at Stein Online. My name is, if you have not been able to glean with your stellar deductive abilities, not Mark Stein. This is Andrew Lawton. The I always get the title wrong because I think it changes every time. But the Deputy Assistant Vice Undersecretary, Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of Assistance for Canadian Affairs for Stein Online. But in any event, it is my great privilege and pleasure to be here at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit differently here because I try to be somewhat of a people pleaser. And I heard, I think it was last week, someone concerned that there was some East Coast supremacy in the time zone recitation. Now, Mark has his own reasons for starting in the East Coast and working his way uh, east from there. But I'm going to do things a little bit differently today just to uh, keep whichever commenter that was happy because it is about 8 a.m. Friday morning on Baker Island, which means it is 10 a.m. at Rarotonga, 11 a.m. in Anchorage. And the Mark Stein cruise went uh, not to Anchorage, but we did go to Juneau, where it's also 11.02 a.m. Friday morning right now, uh, right up to 1 p.m. in Calgary, moving beyond to uh, where I am in London, Ontario, 3 p.m. across the Atlantic. We're going to skip the Atlantic Canada provinces right now uh, because we did the West Coast instead. This is you only get one or the other, I'm told. It is 8 p.m. in London and Edinburgh as well as Cardiff, 9 p.m. in Tirana, and we also have lots more to come here. Now, let me just uh, tell you, apparently we have no audio right now, so I'm going to try and see uh, what on earth is happening here that is resulting in there not being a, an audio feed going across right now. This is what happens when Mark is gone. The whole thing goes to uh, the whole thing goes to uh, Tirana in a uh, handbasket. <laughs> um, this is the the problem sometimes, and it actually is very fitting with a show in which just a couple of the questions I've seen are indicating that nothing is working, and you can take from that a different set of takeaways. I mean, you know, literally, technologically speaking, clearly nothing's working. And uh, these things are, are often very significant challenges. But some of the big picture uh, things also are not working in society. And, and it was quite interesting because I, just to tell a, a bit of a personal story about Mark, I was traveling with Mark uh, to, I believe it was Los Angeles, uh, some years back, and we were doing, uh, we, I was just tagging along. Mark was recording an interview with George Papadopoulos, which you may have seen. So this would have been uh, 2019. And Mark has often said jokingly that nothing works long before it became apparent that literally nothing in society seems to work. And it was interesting because we were trying to get to, I believe it was the actual interview with George Papadopoulos. And we had prearranged for, because we had, uh, I can't even remember what time of day it was. It was in the morning and we had prearranged. There was a car that was going to pick us up from the hotel and go to the interview and it didn't show up at the time that it was supposed to show up. And then we, you know, went to the hotel where we had booked the car service and they had had no record of having uh, us having even requested the car service. And I was so frustrated because obviously, you know, Mark's a big deal and I want to make sure that the show goes on and that the crew isn't waiting and all of that. And I was very disappointed. Okay, this thing that we had, this plan that, you know, you do so that you don't have to improvise was not working. 
And I had said to Mark, we're going to get another car. The first one wasn't booked. And he was almost delighted, not because he wanted to be waiting around in the Los Angeles weather, but because it was very thesis affirming, if you will, because he had said to me, and he sort of just smirked as he said it, see, nothing works. And it was almost comforting to know that nothing worked because then you didn't expect anything to work and you weren't actually disappointed when it didn't work. And the problem with that is that there is a heck of a lot of affirmation and confirmation of that thesis in the world. We spent the entire summer seeing uh, places like Heathrow and uh, Pearson Airport in Toronto and Trudeau Airport in Montreal and JFK in New York just absolutely in shambles because no one could adapt to people deciding that they had been tired of not traveling and not going anywhere for two and a half years and you had baggage halls that were filled with thousands of bags and you had all of these things that didn't work and then eventually we get to the fall and people go back to school, people go back to work, and there's this little bit of a lull. But then you look around now, and in wintertime, when people are all of a sudden saying, hey, this is actually uh, the third year that we've had to deal with a lot of this nonsense, so I'd like to get away for winter holidays. And now again, you have a system that cannot withstand this surge of people that want to go places. And, and I mean, that's the bare minimum of living in a place that is absolutely going to crap, which is the ability to get out of that place. And it was why when Canada had this vaccine mandate where you couldn't get on a plane if you weren't vaccinated, it was so infuriating for people because they actually didn't have the right to leave their own country to get away from the measures that were preventing them from leaving their country. And I look around now, Southwest is, I think, the test case of this right now, because in the U.S., uh, they've had uh, absolute just chaos and beyond chaos. The CEO this morning said there's just no apologizing enough. They're going to make good on it. And, you know, I'm certain certain they're going to give people a bunch of vouchers for, you know, 10% off their next flight or whatever. But when you book a flight, it's not an issue that can be made whole by giving you a refund or giving you a credit. You needed to get from point A to point B. And when the airline has proven itself unable to do that, not because of weather, but because of its own incompetence, there are things they can offer that might sweeten the deal for you. But at a certain point, they have failed. And in some cases, this is irreparably a failure. I heard a story of a Canadian. Now, in Canada, people haven't been able to get passports for the better part of a year with any consistency. And there was a gentleman I heard of named uh, Mustafa who was supposed to get married in Cuba. And not exactly the decision I would do as far as a wedding is concerned or any destination. But nevertheless, for 10 months, he's been waiting for his passport. He was not able to make it to Cuba for the wedding that was supposed to be yesterday. His wife is there, their friends and family are there, he is not there because he has not been able to get a passport. And even if he had gotten a passport, there's no guarantee the planes would have been able to get him there on time. And if he had, maybe the hotel reservation would have been lost or something else would have screwed up along the way. And at a certain point, you have to look around and say, why is nothing working? And on that cheery note, I got, see, I, I got, I had all of these thoughts on, you know, the general brokenness of the world uh, circulating around my head anyway. And then when we had those audio glitches, I got ahead of myself. But anyway, let me go to your questions because this is a Clubland Q&A, which means you are the ones in the driver's seat, not me. And I know these tend to veer into Canadian content just by virtue of my Canadianness. but uh, please do not feel constrained by this in any way. You can ask questions about anything you would like. And I just want to also say that I know your well wishes to Mark are very much appreciated by me, by the team, and most of all, by Mark himself. Uh, I don't actually, I haven't spoken to him today. I don't know uh, how he's doing, but I believe uh, he has had to go back to the drawing board and get the uh, French nurses uh, well-trained on another number because Kate Smythe, as you may have heard, ruined the plans for the Boxing Day special. So he's had to go back to the drawing board and come up with another one. But uh, surely you'll be hearing that soon enough. Eric Dale writes, Andrew and fellow club members, 
What are your thoughts on the recent Twitter file disclosures that confirm that social media companies have, in fact, been suppressing information and news, or at least spinning it in the direction favorable to the U.S. government? TikTok has been in the news as if it's being accused of working with Chinese intelligence to spy on Americans. As a Canadian, could you or any non-American ask if American social media companies are doing the same to you? It seems social media built a better surveillance state and propaganda machine than the Soviets ever dreamed of. Well, I think that last point is an incredibly important one. And I think it was three weeks ago or whatever, whenever I was guest hosting most previously, we were talking about censorship. And I made the point that externally imposed censorship is obviously a great evil, but it's almost a more insidious and powerful evil when people are censoring themselves, when they no longer want to speak, and then there's nothing that really is there to even be censored. And I feel that's the same with privacy rights and surveillance. When you willingly give up the very thing that someone might have to breach your privacy to look at, you are the problem. And, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too, because I use these social media sites. In some cases, and most cases, it's professionally, because, you know, I want to share a link to this episode of the Q&A that I guest hosted or this column that I wrote or something like that. And I actually don't use social media for anything particularly personal. And part of it's because I don't think my life is interesting enough that people want to follow along with it generally. But I think it's also because I don't like the idea of companies profiting off of my existence when I'm not getting any real benefit of it. And social media is transactional. And it's why these news companies that are posting their content on there because they want eyeballs on it, I find to be so hypocritical when they, as they've done in Australia and in Canada, turn around and say to Facebook and Twitter, well, you have to pay us for our content. And I'm thinking, well, you wouldn't post it on there and hire digital teams and social media producers if you didn't feel that you were actually deriving value from this. And I don't derive personal value from posting a picture of my lunch on Instagram necessarily. I have in the past because it's been a particularly good lunch, but generally speaking, I don't derive value from that. So it's not worth it for me to do it. Whereas I do derive value from sharing a link to this thing or that thing if I want to connect with people. And the reason I, I say that is because there are a lot of people that have exported their entire existence to these companies. And, you know, I know people, and not to judge anyone, but I, I know people who uh, actually turn around and post not just pictures of their children and updates about their children, but actually from the time their children are in utero, create accounts for them, create Facebook accounts for them that will follow that child for years. And again, the child is in the fetal stage, not as I understand TikToking, although I wouldn't put it past them in, in some parts of the world. The child is not deriving any choice in this matter. Parents are. Parents are, are creating a, a digital archive of every moment of their child's life and even beyond. And, you know, this is an extreme example. I think in some cases people say, well, I want, you know, grandma in Edinburgh to be able to follow along with what, you know, the baby in London is doing or whatever the case is. But I think that you have to look at the longer term implications of this and, and that we are creating these archives, which we'll never quite understand the extent of and the profiles of. There, there's a company called Signal which I, I don't make product recommendations, but it's one that you should look into. It's a, a smartphone messaging app that is something anyone can install on their phone. And they have a, a corporate culture that is very much about privacy. And they have encryption. They stress this, that no one will be able to intercept your messages, generally speaking. They also don't do any data tracking. And Signal did this campaign a little while ago where they exploited the ad metrics basically, or the profiling that exists on social media websites. And they ran very targeted ads to expose to people how much information social media companies had about them. And it was basically something along the lines of, if you're seeing this, 
it's because you are a newlywed Pilates instructor who loves cartoons and you read parenting blogs and you're thinking of uh, adopting because you're in a gay relationship. And they would do this to just to show people how narrowly targeted Facebook and Instagram had created profiles around them. Now they did this. And then of course, Instagram and Facebook quickly said, we're not letting you run these ads. And uh, Signal was sharing some of this with people. And I, I think it was actually quite an important experiment of sorts just to see how much, because again, a lot of people don't realize that if you're scrolling through your phone and you hover over, you, you see an ad or anything and you just hover over it, Facebook knows you've done that. And they know, well, there was something about that that grabbed your attention. I bought something that I saw an ad for just against my better judgment because I thought it would make a great gag gift. And now I see nonstop ads for things similar to this gag gift that I bought my parents for Christmas, which I, I will not share with you publicly because it's rather an embarrassing purchase. But uh, now the ads are, are even more embarrassing. So Facebook thinks all sorts of crazy things about me now. And it is entirely my own fault about that. But I think to get around to, I, I realize I took the, you know, the thousand yard uh the thousand yard detour around your question eric but i think the whole point of this is that social media companies have given people what they believe is a free product and the old line is that if you're not paying for it you are the product and the reason that they're able to invest in this infrastructure that they can have tens of thousands of employees for us to do something for free is because we become a part of what to Facebook is their profit center, which is selling our data to other companies that have larger uses for it. And we all know this by now, but there's still this dissonance because on one hand, we feel it doesn't matter. And it's odd when there is a bit of pearl clutching about something like TikTok, which of course we know is probably allowing the Chinese state to do a little bit more of this. And we say, well, why? I mean, how is that any different? Why, why do I care about Facebook having my data versus the Chinese state having my data when it's the same data. I, and if I actually cared about it, I wouldn't put it out there in the first place. John writes, Happy New Year to all. Get well soon. Mark, this planet needs a whole lot more of what you do. What that is, is to celebrate culture, all car cultures as well as, our, well, I don't know if ever, Mark, if, I don't know if we would celebrate all cultures, but uh, I get the point. Those of us who are on the cusp of genocidal persecution, well, so many of us assist those who would destroy us. Andrew, how do you navigate the cultural genocide of the West? Are you vigilant? Should we, are you optimistic? Should we dismiss the passing phase of the sleepwalking zombies called the woke? I hate that word. We need our own word for them. One that is grammatically sound. Any suggestions? Well, I, I don't have an etymological suggestion, but I think the bigger picture part of your question here, am I optimistic? Am I vigilant? I, I go back and forth on this. And, you know, there are a lot of things, and my wife and I have taken it upon ourselves to just point out a lot of these things now as we see them, which is that, you know, we will see an ad for this ridiculous TV show and say, well, yes, this is only something a, a terminal culture would produce. But I also think, on the other hand, that I do what I do for a reason. And I wouldn't do what I do if I didn't think that there was an ability to salvage at least a bit of the world we live in. And I don't know if it can all be salvaged, but I say this to other people that show up to rallies or read content that I put out, that Mark puts out, that listen to these shows. There would be no point swimming in this if you didn't feel that there were some value to it. There was a piece in the New York Times a few years back, and I can't remember the name of the writer. It was not one of their better-known writers. But it was a fascinating piece about an infuriating character, which was a guy who, after Donald Trump won the 2016 election, just decided he was going to swear off news. And he built himself a little bubble around himself where he didn't uh, need any news. He didn't want any news. He wouldn't consume any. He had his uh, investments managed without him knowing about them. He would wear headphones and avoid newspapers if he went out to coffee shops. And the whole point was that he didn't feel his life had suffered 
from not knowing what was happening in the world around him. And I admit I would have loved to have seen a follow-up with how that guy eventually navigated uh, COVID or the 2020 election or some of these other things, because I don't think you can keep that up forever with what's happened in the world in recent years. But there, there is something to that, which is that for the most part, the information that we take in is not useful information. We may think it is, we may convince ourselves it is, but we have very little influence in what's going to happen in the world and what's going to happen in the lives, in our lives as individuals. And, you know, I don't want to deny that, you know, small groups of individuals can change the world and, you know, that old quote about how they're the only ones that ever have. But generally speaking, we could all just go to a beach, ignore everything, live our lives out until we die, and the world will probably be very similar to the one that exists now with us paying attention to everything. So the question is, why do we? And I I think it's because all of us have this little bit of hope, however pessimistic and cynical we get, this little bit of hope that we can make things better on even a small scale. And COVID is a great example of this. I mean, I like to think that I have had an impact in my own small way in Canada at pushing back against the doctatorship, against the expertocracy, not to the extent that I've been able to undo a lot of the harm or prevent the harm, but certainly by pushing this message of freedom, which is one that very few people in Canadian media were doing. And, you know, you get a couple of people in independent media that do this. Eventually, some folks in the mainstream media start to wisen up to it. And eventually, the government has to relent. And, I mean, the Freedom Convoy in Canada was a great example of of the why. But at the same time, I also realized that we take these small victories, which feel like massive victories, but in the grand scheme of things are actually quite insignificant because it's so easy to undo them. And, and that's where my pessimism comes. My optimism comes from the fact that these small victories are possible. My pessimism comes from the fact that you get one of these big wins that feels like a big win that isn't actually a big win. And then within five seconds, Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden or Rishi Sunak or Jacinda Ardern or whatever, with the stroke of a pen, can just undo it or create something so much worse. And... I guess that's the challenge, but I I go back to how I started that answer, which is that there is a need to remain vigilant because if we all just decided it wasn't worth it, we would be doing so, I personally, maybe you wouldn't, but I would be doing so many other things right now. Ian writes, hi, Andrew, first of all, Happy New Year, and of course, wish Mark all the best in his recovery. It must be tough being surrounded by all those French nurses bringing him endless wine and cheese, no doubt. I believe in French hospitals, that is actually what you get. In uh, in North American hospitals, you get like a TV dinner that uh, probably was sitting in front of the TV instead of in any uh, conventional cooking apparatus. But in French uh, hospitals, you get the wine and cheese, I believe. Ian continues, what percentage would you put on the chances of COVID restrictions coming in across the Western world in 2023? There's clearly a media campaign in the UK, at least to do something about arrivals from China. Once that happens, I suspect it'll be masks next. Then why work from home orders again or another round of must-have jabs? I hate to be the prophet of doom, but it feels ominous. Well, doesn't it feel or sound very familiar? Because right now, the U.S. has decided to put COVID tests in place for flights from China. Now, we know that this is not going to do anything because it hasn't done anything in the past. The U.K. has joined that. I think today they announced they're going to start requiring COVID tests on flights from China. Uh, This morning, interestingly enough, Pierre Polyev, who's the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, And he was a convoy supporter. He was the only one that was really standing up and saying, uh, we need to oppose the mandates. Now he was saying, uh, because he was at a press conference, and he was asked about whether there is a need in his view for uh, some vaccine requirement or testing requirement for flights coming in from China. And Mr. Freedom, Mr. Conservative said, well, we're we're still looking at it. We're going to think of the science. We don't have a position yet. And I was thinking immediately, hell no. 
And it's not because I don't think that we need to pay attention to what's happening in China. But the problem is what will happen is, and we've seen exactly this thing in 2019, 2020, we all dither about whether we need to do something about what's happening in China. And then, well, it, in the time it takes for Western leaders to decide to be tough on uh, what's coming from China, uh, whatever's coming from China is now around the world. And the thing that they could have surgically done to stop the uh, inflow from China has now been uh, something that they need to do for everyone everywhere coming in at any port of entry. And all of a sudden, we're right back into mask mandates and testing requirements and vaccine mandates and quarantine orders, all because of a refusal to do what needed to be done early on. So we're seeing a large number of cases coming out of China, absolutely. But what we have not yet seen is any belief that this case, in, this case surge is relevant in any meaningful way. We're not seeing a new virus here. We're not seeing people that are uh, piling up in body bags on the streets like, you know, we were all fearing was happening early on in March 2020. We're seeing just large numbers of cases. And we know that this is exactly what happens. Cases get uh, more and more common and less and less severe as the pandemic goes on. And at a certain point, we had to, had to decide to live with COVID as being endemic. And I've been there for quite a while, and I think most people have been there for quite as well. And, and I'm not a, a science expert. I try not to weigh in on matters of medicine or science, but I can also look at numbers, and I, I can look at severity, and I can look at the fact that someone like me, who's a, an overweight person, not particularly healthy, but not particularly unhealthy, I've gotten COVID, I believe, twice and been absolutely fine both times. And I, I was actually more sick from the COVID vaccine than I was from COVID. And that's true on uh, both the doses of the COVID vaccine uh, and also the uh, both rounds of COVID. It was the vaccine was worse than the COVID for me. And I didn't have any long-term effects from the vaccine. But the whole point is that we know that it's possible to live with this because that's what people are doing. And there seems to be this desire by a lot of the alarmists to always find some boogeyman that they can point to. And in this case, it's China's case count. But remember, early on, these people were the ones saying we have to go out and make sure that we aren't acting in a discriminatory fashion against China. And there was that, I think that mayor of, was, he, was it an Italian town that said we had to go out and hug a Chinese person? Because this was before social distancing, because we had to make sure that Chinese people didn't feel alienated by the Wuhan virus at the time, which, uh, as we know, quickly uh, became no longer allowed to call. The, the Wuhan virus. So right now I'm looking at the numbers out of China and I have not yet found a reason to care. And I think that the panic that we're seeing in the US and the UK and soon to be in Canada, uh, Japan, I believe just uh, this morning said it was going to start testing all arrivals. This is something we should be very concerned by because this is always incremental to start. It was not mandatory quarantine and mandatory vaccination in March of 2020, but there was a road to that when everything else they put up didn't work and they decided that cases were the target and cases were the goal and getting to zero cases was the necessity and the COVID zero approach failed, which is why the COVID zero countries like New Zealand and Australia fared far worse than the natural immunity countries like Sweden. And even though, to be fair, Sweden had a couple of moments where they, they panicked and a couple of moments where they said, okay, maybe we, we shouldn't have just let this be. But history has proven their approach to have been no worse. Even if you don't want to say it was better, history has proven their approach to be no worse than all of the really alarmist COVID zero responses that we saw in places like Australia, New Zealand. I mean, some of the Asian countries like Taiwan and Singapore, sure, they managed to fare all right when they, when they were completely shutting down their society. 
But then you have to look at the harms of shutting down your society and the harms of lockdowns and the harms of all of these other things. So I, I look at this and I, I will say that we all need to be very cognizant of anyone that starts replicating the same language that was used in March 2020 and who pretends that we're back to square one. And that's my whole thing because I actually am very forgiving about people that took a, a more panicked view or a more alarmist view early on because we legitimately didn't know what we were dealing with. And anyone who claims three years on that this is new and that we don't know what's happening and we don't know what we're dealing with is blatantly lying. And these are people that didn't want us to get out of lockdown in the first place. So I, I am... I am very nervous about these things making a comeback, Ian, but I have to hope that people will uh, wise up to it. Uh, Jessica C. writes, Hi, Andrew, do you think the masking forever folks will win? I go back and forth with it. On one hand, I think there will be a, a subset of the population that does do this, but most people I saw couldn't wait to drop the masks once the mandates were gone. Yeah, I, I think... <sighs> It's interesting because I live in a part of my city that I quite enjoy and I can go out to the store and it's not a particularly ritzy area. It's not an impoverished area or anything, but the thing is I can go around it and once the mask mandate dropped, there were very few masks out at the grocery store. And I was around for the most part in the last however many months, people that were somewhat like me that were not wearing masks, that were completely fine with that. And it was interesting because a few weeks before Christmas, I went into this really high-end grocery store. I, I shouldn't say really high-end, but, but a higher-end grocery store in a really nice part of the city that I hadn't been to in quite a while. And I think it was just me and the staff that were unmasked. Everyone else there was masked up, whether they were in their 30s, their 40s, their 80s, their 90s, everyone except for a couple of the staff and me were wearing their masks. And I, I looked around and, and I was reminded of the fact that there is a bit of a demographic issue here. And I, I don't mean demographic in terms of race or generation, although, I mean, those things have an influence, but there's a class demographic. And Part of the masking thing is a sign of signaling virtue, undoubtedly, which is why if you do believe in masking, you know that those crappy, tattered cloth masks that haven't been washed in three years are doing next to nothing, if not nothing when it comes to preventing transmission. But still, you see these people that would bark at me for not wearing a mask, wearing these uh, crappy, raggedy, ratty, uh, tattered cloth masks and they're doing it because it feels they make if they feel it makes them a better person it feels it makes them a more virtuous person and a lot of these people again are the ones that put stickers on that say they got vaccinated that changed their facebook profile pictures to the ones of them getting the jab it's because to them it actually is a sign of class it's not just about public health it's about i'm smarter than you i'm more pious than you i'm healthier than you and we know that that, of course, really has no bearing on, on anything. Whether you are uh, posting on Facebook about your jab does not actually reduce transmission or not. Uh, just as getting the jab, uh, we learn, does not actually reduce transmission. But the thing about the masking forever is that, and Jessica makes this in her question here, that most of the people she saw couldn't wait to drop the masks once the mandates were gone. I think the challenge there is that a lot of those people didn't clearly believe in masks, but when they were told to wear them, they did it. They were compliant. They went along with it. And I should say, I mean, I was generally a fairly compliant person. I, I, I never put up a fight on airplanes because I didn't want to end up on some no-fly list and not be able to get anywhere else. Uh, when I went into stores, generally speaking, I would wear a mask. And my, my rationale was that it was not, my fight was not with the store if they were imposing a mandate that was actually the government's mandate. But as it went on, I, I started to care less and less about that. And I would take this approach that I would walk around maskless. And if someone asked me to put it on, I would. And, and otherwise, I, I would uh, just carry on. And no one ever asked me. And, and you would see other people start to look around and say, oh, wow, I guess, I guess it's okay to be unmasked here. So I can, I can take my mask off. And when you talk about this, you get a lot of people 
that are from that alarmist camp that say, well, what's the big deal? It's just a mask. And I admit that that is an alluring argument for a lot of people because they genuinely think, oh, it's just a little piece of cloth or paper over your face. It's nothing. It's not intrusive or invasive. It's no big deal. It's all fine. And the problem with that is that if you start seeding these little things, the asks get larger and larger. And it was interesting with masks. There was a university in my city that I went to years ago, uh, University of Western Ontario, that started to mandate the specific types of mask. And they had people that were going around. And if you were wearing the wrong type of mask, they had this pair of tongs and they would bark at you and hand you uh, with the tongs, or I guess not handing, they would tong you, if that's a verb, the correct mask that you needed to put on. And and again, all of a sudden we're seeing that just it's just a little imposition is not actually the case, that there's something larger that's going to be asked of you. And then when masks don't work, it's, well, we have to impose social distancing. And I still meet people that are uncomfortable with the idea of shaking hands. And not that they're uncomfortable because they think it's unhealthy. They're uncomfortable because they don't want to feel like they're intruding. They don't want to feel like they're doing something wrong. So this idea that social distancing, even though we know it really had no tangible benefit on public health, people that have sort of accepted that being near people, there's something wrong with that. This is not something you can do or not something you can safely do. And vaccination requirements, very same idea, that this is now something that we've decided as a society was apparently acceptable. And I know that the United States was not quite at the same level as Canada, although I don't think that's necessarily true when you look at the fact that the border requirement still is in place that requires people to be vaccinated if they want to go to the United States. So all of this is to say that when you start seeing these little things that you think are little and pretend are little accepted as the norm, it licenses the government to make the ask or the demand larger and larger. Carla writes, well, we've already sort of done this one. Uh, Justin, UK will join US in putting on testing requirement for flights coming in from China. This is sound, seeming eerily familiar three years since this all began. Yeah, I think eerily familiar is right. And I go back to the point I made, I think it was to Ian a little while earlier, that if you do start hearing politicians or people in the media or those so-called top doctors. <laughs> I'm tired of the top doctors, but you start hearing the top doctors uh, use the language of 2020 and act all uncertain about this and, oh, oh so befuddled and we don't know what we're dealing with. You should uh, tell them, absolutely not. I'm not buying it. I'm not going along with that. Uh, we have, by the way, I would like it noted, we've gone just uh, shy of 39 minutes here without uh, getting in too deeply into Canadian content. So I, I thank you for, for keeping me on track there. Although George Pereira has a Canadian content question. He says, uh, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon... Oh, this is an old, uh, an old school question. Sergeant Preston of the Yukon was a terrific program from the mid-1950s, given that the sergeant was the beau ideal of the Mounties. I was going to say the uh, embodiment of the perfect Mountie, but felt throwing in a little French lingo uh, would help with the Canadian content of my comment. Yes, thank you, George Pereira. You are uh, Bill C-11 approved to uh, keep with the Trudeau language here. Uh, but uh, let's see here. He was himself an American, and the program was filmed in Colorado. Also, Yukon King was a five-year-old Alaskan Malamute from Michigan. Rex was likewise American and was personally owned by actor Richard Simmons. How much Canadian content was there in the program? And how much Canadian content was there in the red-green show? <laughs> well, so this is, uh, interestingly enough, I've never seen Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, but I, I'm familiar with it. I think it was from, yeah, the 1950s, he said. And it was like a show set in the late, I want to say the late, uh, well, it was the late 1800s, but it, maybe it was, you know, 1880s or 90s about a Mountie who was a member not of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who did not exist at the time, but the Northwest Mounted Police. 
that were patrolling the uh, northwest of, of Canada. And it was a show that had this idealization of Canada that we don't see. And it was an intro, I, because the show was not, as George says, Canadian content. It was uh, American in, in everything but the plot premise, but still there was a, a fair bit of interest in it. And it was a CBS audience or a CBS production that cultivated this audience. And no, Richard Simmons, the actor is by the way, not the same as Richard Simmons, the uh, fitness icon who was not a tough Yukon Northwest uh, mounted police officer. So if you were confused about like Richard Simmons, just doing lunges uh, through the Yukon with an Alaskan Malamute, I assure you it is a different Richard Simmons, but uh, Richard Simmons, the actor was American. The show was American. The production was American and it was not at all real Canadian content, but it was telling a Canadian story, which was a heck of a lot better of a story than the real Canadian content or the quote-unquote official Canadian content we get now. I mean, there was a show on right now called Shit's Creek with Eugene Levy and his son, and I believe, is, is Catherine O'Hara in it? I've never actually seen the show, but I know it's become quite a sensation. It's a sitcom that people seem to enjoy. But most Canadian shows do not have any appeal inside Canada or outside of Canada. There was one uh, that was on years ago that was the source of much mockery called Little Mosque on the Prairie, which was exactly as insufferable as it sounds. There have been other shows that are produced by our state broadcaster that do absolutely nothing for Canadians, but are nevertheless getting millions of dollars in Canadian government grants. And just because government forces broadcasters to carry Canadian content, they're put on TV, even though Canadians would rather just go to see whatever's on CBS or NBC or Netflix or all of that. So uh, the Red Green Show in, is the, the other one he mentions. I don't even know if I can... I, like, I don't even know if I can describe what the Red Green Show is, which was fairly good Canadian content. But again, it was a very low-budget show and an enjoyable one. I, I interviewed uh, years ago Steve Smith, the actor who played Red Green on this show. And Red Green is like a, a very distinctive Canadian character. And I remember when I was doing the interview, the publicist asked me if I wanted to interview Steve Smith or if I wanted to interview Red Green, as in, a, did I want to talk to the character or did I want to talk to the actor? And I was a bit confused. She said, you can do either, but you only get one. You, you can't like transition between the two. And I didn't actually, I realized then I didn't actually know anything about Steve Smith, the actor. So I just went with Red Green, the character. And it was a, it was a fine interview. But I, again, it was a, a type of thing that would be of zero, zero use and zero interest to anyone outside the country. And I, I think the a line that Conrad Black has said that Mark has quoted in the past is that, you know, the thing about Canadian art is that it loses 90% of its value the second it crosses the border. I'd say it's probably a little bit more than 90%, though. Elisa Angel writes, Dear Brigadier Lawton, ooh, this is a new title. Dear Brigadier Lawton, you have so many other titles here, but, but not one is a military title. No, I'm, I'm in the civilian ranks of Stein Online still. Uh, but she says, anyway, Dear Brigadier, where, why are some news stories dead on arrival or dead soon after? The assassination of Shinzo Abe almost got no play here. Salman Rushdie's near-fatal attack was in the news for a nanosecond. Why aren't those stories worth further review or follow-up on those men's attackers? Meanwhile, there's seamless, uh, seemingly endless news on broken marriages, salacious affairs, and the like. Are there any news stories that pop to mind that have gotten little play that you'd that you wish you'd seen more of this year? Oh, and happy new year. Well, happy new year to you as well, Veronica. This is uh, indeed the last uh, Clubland Q and A of 2022. I think. I mean, part of the problem is that people only have the bandwidth for so much, and people cannot keep themselves at. 11 out of 10 indefinitely. They, they may try, but they can't. And I think there are two types of people when it comes to news consumption. There are the people with an agenda, 
that shove every story that comes up through a particular lens and they disregard stuff that they can't uh, look, they can't look at through the same prism. And one of the, the challenges here you see in, in this unfold in is climate stuff. The people that look at everything and see it as being global warming. There's, it's too hot today, global warming. It's too cold today, global warming. There's an extreme weather event, it's global warming. There, there are no extreme weather events, well, that's also global warming. And there are a lot of people like that, which is why we're seeing some of this turf war between the COVID alarmists and the climate alarmists, because, you know, the climate alarmists think it's their turn again, and the COVID alarmists still want to keep this going and keep their grift going in that sense. But I think there's another group of people, which is the, the people that actually don't know what to make of the news, that the stories come, they don't know what it is they're supposed to do. They feel they're supposed to be talking about it. And they talk about it, and then they realize they don't have anything to say. And I, I think one tremendous example of this is the Russia-Ukraine war. When, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it was not, what was it, nine months ago or so in, in this particular round. It was World War III. It was crisis. It was chaos. It was a threat. The, the world was never going to be the same again. The world was never going to recover. And now this war is still going on. It obviously hasn't gone for Russia the way that everyone thought. Uh, it hasn't gone the way Russia thought. But this thing has happened. And I'd say, generally speaking, you still see the Ukraine flags up and you still see the Yukon, uh, not Yukon. The U <laughs> this is uh, going back to that uh, show that was asked about a few moments ago. Get Sergeant Preston of the Yukon over to uh, Kiev. But you still see the Ukraine flag emojis on uh, people's Twitter bios and, and all of that. But for the most part, people have moved on. People, generally speaking, have their belief that, okay, you know, Russia's in the wrong or Russia's in the right. And uh, beyond that, they, they all sort of just move on from it entirely. And I, I think that the uh, big thing that is going on with Russia-Ukraine is that it doesn't fit neatly into the boxes a lot of people want to put it in. And I know I had some criticism when I, I talked about this a couple of Q&As ago because I said, look, look, I mean, at the end of the day, Russia is the invader and, and I have no support or time for Russia. And I, I put a caveat there, which is that this is not to say that Ukraine is squeaky clean and Zelensky is squeaky clean. But my position is that at the end of the day, Ukraine was the one that was invaded. And, and, you know, we could talk about how the world should respond, if the world should respond. But I, I think that in and of itself is a, a level of nuance that a lot of people are incapable of on this issue, because they want to believe that uh, Russia is the bad guy, Ukraine's the good guy, that uh, Putin is the villain, and Zelensky is the time man of the year, and that uh, anything that complicates that, they don't quite know what to make of. And Elisa brings up the near-fatal attack on Salman Rushdie, which may not have killed him, but I, I think is going to still uh, be completely irreparable from everything we've heard about that and, and what it's done to him. And we heard about this, we saw it, but we are told now that we're not allowed to ask questions about Islamic values and how those might, to some people, translate to violence. We're not allowed to talk about Islamism. We're not allowed to ask questions about uh, these sorts of identifying characteristics, which is why uh, whenever there is a terrorist attack now, it's always dismissed as mental illness. And you're not to pay any heed to the fact that the person shouted out Allahu Akbar before they did whatever it is they did. So th this, again, is, is something that now is complicating, that you can't actually talk about Salman Rushdie without talking about who it was that did this to him and why they did it to him. So once you get beyond the thoughts and prayers for Salman Rushdie phase, which is uncontroversial, and you have to talk about the real issues, people move on because they don't actually have the ability or the motivation to ask those real questions and to ask those quite significant questions. Peter writes, Hi, Andrew. I saw a few articles suggesting that a majority of Canadians want Trudeau to resign. Here's the Canadian content. Bring it on, Peter. Didn't a major majority of them elect him a second time? I don't understand. Are people finally frustrated enough with him? Will he go for a walk in the snow when he gets back from Jamaica? Now, walk in the snow is Canadian 
slang, if you will, for uh, taking a moment to think about it and resigning, uh, as Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, did. He took a walk in the snow and then stepped down as prime minister, although by that time the damage had very much been done. I, look, Justin Trudeau has won three elections in a row. He won in 2015, he ran in uh, 2019 and won, he ran in 2021, and he had campaigned on a vaccine mandate, he had uh, campaigned on vaccine passports, and he won again. Now, you look at this, and you can talk about the ineffectual leadership of the so-called Conservative Party in the last two elections in particular, which I think is a legitimate discussion. But at the same time, it also, to me, is some, somewhat irrelevant because Canadians have decided that they're okay with him. And is it because they like him? Is it because they like his party? Is it just because they, they don't align with the Conservatives? It doesn't really matter. I was speaking at an event a few weeks ago, and I, I used the term uh, that Justin Trudeau had won fair and square. And I, I got jeered for a few moments by people who I, I got the sense believed that because no one they know likes Justin Trudeau, therefore he must have won by some fraudulent means. And I think voter fraud needs to be taken very seriously. But in Canada, voter fraud is not an issue. You cannot easily hack a Canadian election. People are voting by pencil and paper. The ballots are counted where they're cast. There are scrutineers from all parties that are there. And the results come in right after the ballots are counted. And the counting continues until there is a result. And I know in some provinces in Canada, they've switched over to electronic counting and stuff like that. But federal elections, the ones that voted for Justin Trudeau, are as tamper-proof as it gets. So absolutely, I believe that Justin Trudeau won fair and square. Now, that doesn't mean it was the right decision, and it certainly doesn't mean that uh, there wasn't influence coming in other ways. We know that the Chinese state, interestingly enough, was funneling money towards uh, political efforts that were getting certain political candidates elected. So uh, the Chinese Communist Party has influenced Canada's elections in ways that we might uh, never quite understand because the federal government in Canada uh, has not been interested in investigating this, perhaps for obvious reasons. But generally speaking, I think that Justin Trudeau won. And a lot of it is, I, I take a very myopic view because people have bought into this. People have bought into the idea that a bigger government is the natural order of things, that it is actually not in their best interest to be able to make their own choices. And that's why the divisiveness we saw from Trudeau over things like vaccination status were things that were entirely accepted and welcomed by people. And to go back to one of the themes that came up earlier in this program about how uh, so many people are, I think, willing to give up their privacy and willing to give up their free speech, willing to censor themselves. The, the challenge in all of this is that if people are willing to give up their liberty, you actually don't need a government to take their liberty away because the government has the outcome without having to get its hands dirty. And in Canada, people have voted in a government that doesn't particularly care about freedom, that is uh, very much against it in pretty much every meaning, in, in every interpretation of the word. And that continues to get rewarded. So again, maybe Pierre Polyev can pull out a win next time, but he will have to do a lot to undo the damage of what will be 10 years of Justin Trudeau by the time the next election rolls around in 2025. Uh, R.B. Newberg writes, Hi, Andrew, did you see anything about Zelensky making a visit to the WEF? What is with the world's crush on him? And why is America still funneling billions to him? Please make it make sense. Well, again, this goes back to people wanting to and needing to see this conflict in black and white terms. So uh, I'm actually in about two weeks time going to be in Davos myself. Now, I'm not a white badged invited elite to Davos, I assure you. I'm there as a journalist covering what's happening in the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. But I know that they're going to continue to fet Zelensky. They're going to continue to finger wag at what Russia's done. But the WEF is a fascinating example of being the problem masquerading as the solution. 
because I remember in 2020, I believe it was, or it might have actually been 2021, when Vladimir Putin was a keynote speaker at the World Economic Forum. Now, again, this is a guy who had overseen the invasion of, or the annexation of Crimea in, uh, what, 2014. So six, seven years later, the World Economic Forum believes he can be a partner at the table. And now they're all surprised. Oh, well, well, why hasn't this worked? We were all supposed to be on the same team and we were all supposed to be friends. And they believed that they were the saviors of the world. And all they have become is an opportunity for a shadowy cabal of global leaders to meet with a shadowy cabal of business leaders and to do this all in the Swiss mountains and come out with policy proclamations that no one voted for, that uh, there has never been a referendum on, and all being presided over by people like Klaus Schwab, who no one can actually vote out, who somehow manages to appear at the G20 despite not being the leader of a G-anything country. So... Look, I, I actually get if you are a country like the United States that has decided Russia's the bad guy, and I think for, for very good reasons in some ways, I get that you can't have the nuanced position, that you end up saying, okay, well, Ukraine's the good guy, ergo, we've got to make Zelensky the good guy. And when Zelensky shows up in D.C. wearing that green sweater, I, I don't get all pearl clutchy about formal wear. I think if someone wants to wear a suit or not wear a suit, I don't really care. But you know it's deliberate. You, you know it's deliberate and that he is cultivating an image and that anything you get from either side of this is propaganda. And, and it's this belief that only one side's narrative is propaganda that I find to be very insufferable in a lot of the coverage of the Ukraine-Russia crisis and any other crisis for that matter. Nicola writes, actually, no, I'll actually, I'll end with MJ's because that's a fun one. Nicola writes, uh, just contributed to True North, which uh, will apparently be matched by a tech entrepreneur fan of your efforts, which I believe is in part tax deductible. Well, thank you very much for that support. True North is the, uh, if you really like my Canadian content, True North is the, the place to go for that. Uh, wondering, do you think like in the Bible, we will face seven years of tough years famine without the government having stored up savings during the last seven years? Well, I, I'd say we're already in the midst of uh, the seven years of tough years. It's not exactly famine unless we count the deprivation of freedom, but I think we are in about three years on. So we haven't even passed the halfway point yet, unfortunately, Nicola. Uh, let's see. Toby writes, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts exactly on why numbers for Canadian assisted suicides are so much higher than California's. Is it Trudeau versus Newsom or something to do with the dark frozen North as opposed to the sunshine state? Well, I, to be honest, the, I, I don't know if you meant that facetiously, but I, I do think there is something to be said about people being happier in warmer weather, which is why the fear-mongering about global warming is particularly insufferable because no one ever flees to colder climates when you're talking about the exodus of, of people for any weather-related reasons. But um, let me just say that I think in Canada, there's been a culture of death, a culture of death that's been a, a very significant problem right now and in, in that this has gotten worse and, and a lot of the worst case scenarios the worst case fears that were put forward by people like me and other critics of the assisted suicide regime about what was going to happen if you just open the floodgates have, have happened and the government said just trust us you know this isn't going to be abused this is just something that you need to have on the books and you know we can just leave it to the doctors and their discretion and that's that and that is not how it's unfolded and, and the fact that in march unless the government can finally and, and officially put an extension in people with only mental illnesses will be allowed to end their lives with state assistance is a, a profound shame it's disgusting and it's not gone as far yet in places like California and, and even in Europe. I mean, in Switzerland, you can pretty much get assisted suicide on demand. And this is not why I'm going to Davos. I am planning on coming back. It was a return ticket. So you don't need to worry about that. But it's in Canada, they're actively promoting it. There have been veterans that have called up because they say, well, I need some assistant. I'm a veteran. I fought for my country. I, I'm having trouble with my life right now, and I'm told you'll look after me. And then the Veterans Affairs 
Canada person that they speak to on the phone says, well, have you considered killing yourself? And there have been, I think, four or five cases identified of this happening or other people uh, like one woman that said, yeah, I need a chairlift in my home because I'm having trouble getting up and down stairs. And they say, wow, what you really mean is uh, you want to kill yourself. And I don't know how many vulnerable people are going along with this because someone that they talk to is telling them this is the right answer. And I think at the same time, there is a, a big challenge here in that in Canada, we've just adopted as a fait accompli this idea that this culture of death is the normal way of doing things. And, and that's very difficult to undo. Uh, Deborah writes, Hi, Andrew. Polyev was not the only Canadian politician speaking out against the restrictions of the Covidians. Bernier spoke out from the start and has continued to speak out. Heck, he even got arrested for standing up against the COVID restrictions. I, I think that's very, very true. And I, if I said he was the only Canadian politician, that wasn't my intent. I, I meant he was the only one in the Conservatives. And I should say one of the only. There were a couple of others like Leslin Lewis and uh, Dean Allison. But uh, Maxime Bernier, who has been on the Mark Stein show, he, he's been on my show, I, I consider him a friend, has been tremendously consistent on this, but has also had no impact on the electoral map at this time because his party has failed to get a seat in the legislature, and I, I hope he does. He, in 2019, had, I think it was like 1.6% of the vote, and in 2021, he had tripled that, and that was at the height of the COVID situation. And uh, there were some jurisdictions where his candidates, I believe, were in second place and, and a couple were there in third. So uh, I think it, it's something that is tremendously important. And, and it was interesting because a lot of people that support the PPC have now started to reevaluate. Sorry, the People's Party of Canada is Maxime Bernier's party. A lot of the people who have supported his party have started to reevaluate whether they might like proportional representation, because if, you know, a guy like him has 5% of the vote or 6% of the vote, that's actually not an insignificant amount of influence in a legislature that had proportional representation, although that's not what we have in Canada at this time. And uh, it was interestingly Justin Trudeau that promised to change that some years ago and then realized that it would mean he'd have to give up his chance of having control of the House of Commons. So he uh, quickly put that on the back burner. Uh, there are some more questions there. We'll have to get to those in a future edition of the program. I do want to end with this one from MJ, though, which is a, a fun one and a light one to end on here. Andrew, can we expect another duet from you and Michelle Bachman on this year's Mark Stein cruise? Well, I, what happens on the Mark Stein cruise is supposed to stay on the Mark Stein cruise, although since you have brought it up, MJ... Yes, I was very, very blessed to do a, a duet of the song Sway with Michelle Bachman, with Tal Bachman accompanying on the last Mark Stein cruise. And Michelle Bachman also absolutely rocked Dancing Queen and also was a tremendous comedienne appearing in a, an adaptation of uh, Phelan McAleer's Lovebirds playing Lisa Page while Mark Stein played uh, Peter Strzok. And that was uh, something that you can't exactly unsee because it was just so wildly fantastic, this uh, presentation by the two of them. So the whole point is I don't actually know what's coming up on the next Mark Stein cruise in every sense, but I will give you a little bit of a preview. This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. Yes, it is going to be a great cruise. We'll have uh, Mark Stein, of course, Michelle Bachman, Tal Bachman, Leilani Dowding, Bo Snerdley, Alexandra Marshall, John O'Sullivan, Ava Blardingerbrook, and of course, yours truly. But don't let that uh, turn you off the whole prospect because it is an absolutely great time. And after the last three years, I'd say it's never been more important to do something normal and something fun. So I hope to see many of you there. And I thank you so much for putting up with me, not just 
just in the past hour, but also in all of the guest hosted editions of the Clubland Q&A over the last uh, however many uh, months it's been uh, that I've been doing it this particular year. So my thanks to all of you, and I will uh, send us off with a Canadian classic here. Well, at least a, a classic song about Canada and wish you all a happy new year. Thank you so much. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.